Heavenly Father, as we come to look at what Christians have been declaring for 2,000 years, and we come to look at your word as well tonight, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through these words. We pray, Lord, that we might come to believe and trust in you. Amen. Well, as uh, Richard said, this is the beginning of a new series in the evening based upon the creed. So the sermon tonight will be basically split into two. There'll be a general introduction about what is a creed and what it entails and what is belief. And then we'll turn to the passage that we have had read to us and a bit more as well. Because there's a basic question, isn't there, for each one of us here tonight. What is a creed? Well, of course, I expect you're all very good Anglicans, and you will know what a creed is. Well, I was brought up in a good, Bible-believing Christian family. My parents were members of what was called a Brethren Assembly, and uh, we attended services each Sunday and uh, even in the, in the holidays, even in the evening as well. And I can tell you that the brethren really knew their Bibles. And I was challenged with the gospel message frequently. But within those brethren services, there was no mention of a creed. And then in the teens, we moved as a family to a Baptist church where again they knew and preached the gospel, they taught the Bible, but again, no mention of a creed. I did know, though, that the Baptist Federation did have a statement of belief. So it wasn't until I went, like our student friends over there, I went down to London and uh, I joined a church called All Hallows, or all, uh, not all house. Can't think of what his name is now. Let's look. All Souls, Langham Place. That's right. I went to All Souls, Langham Place, went to a true Anglican church, and there, in the first time for me, I came across this strange thing called a creed. And that creed formed a regular part of the liturgy. So, when then, so the question then for some of us might be, what is a creed? Well, Collins' Dictionary says this. It's a good English dictionary. It says, a creed is a set of beliefs, principles or opinions that strongly influence the way people live or work. Now, the word creed actually comes from the Latin word credo. I'm not a Latin scholar, but that's what the books say. And that means, I believe and trust. I believe and trust. Now, creeds are very different to what we are much more used to in our general society, and that is to mission statements, which is the popular choice of companies, organisations, charitable trusts, schools and even churches today. A mission statement will often contain what that organisation sees as important 
maybe its aims. And it reflects the cultural norms of that society. And a mission statement is made up by the people who are part of that organisation. And they assume that it's the truest thing that we can say about that particular organisation. It's something that they make up for themselves. Because today, there is a scepticism, isn't there, concerning anything that comes from the past. There's a question concerning what is truth and can we believe what has been spoken many years ago. Of course, we have the benefit of hindsight, don't we? We can see, did the actions of the people match what they actually said? And so we get lots of comments about hypocrisy, the ways of behaving different to what was declared. But the creeds were somewhat different because they were developed in the early centuries of the church and they've remained important to the church and they're regularly used in worship today as they are here. However, what is their function? Why do we have them? Well, there are two basic functions of the creed. Firstly, there's the educational function, and then secondly, there's the sacramental function. Educationally, because it tells us what the basis of the Christian faith contains. It was written down to help educate people. It formed the basis of teaching of new believers for centuries. Now, we need to bear in mind, of course, that for centuries, new believers didn't have a written Bible that they could read. In fact, of course, for centuries, most ordinary people couldn't read at all. So the creeds became simple confessions and statements of faith that could be easily recited and they could be expanded upon as to the truth concerning God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And so the people could join together in either saying or singing the creed. It was a communal action within the congregation, reminding each other about what was the basis of their faith. So it was a very important educational tool. But secondly, it was sacramental because it was used within baptismal uh, services when believers would recite the creed. It was used as a rule of faith to give continuity to orthodox Christian doctrine. And in the West, by the early Middle Ages, it was widely employed within baptismal services and within morning prayer and even song as well. And the creed that we have today, which comes from that, is Trinitarian in form. But the heart of the creed is its confession concerning Jesus and the events to do with his conception, his birth, his suffering, his death, resurrection, ascension and coming judgment. But it begs the question, of course, how many creeds are there? Well, if you do the good old Wikipedia research into this, you'll see there are many, many creeds. But there are three main ones. The Nicene, the Apostles, and the Athanasian. 
And the one that we're going to be looking at tonight is the Apostles' Creed. Because the Apostles' Creed derived from the Bible. It gives an accurate basis for the development of all Christian theology that we know today. It formulates the arguments for the Christian faith. It gives a firm foundation that we can build our own philosophy of life on. It led to the development of other solid statements of faith, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. And virtually all confessions and creeds are rooted in this Apostles' Creed. Because it's based upon apologetics, that is, arguments against those who were trying to refute the teaching of the Apostles. And the apostles, we know, spent much time counteracting diverse views that opposed their original teaching. So we read, for instance, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. The creed reflects what the apostles taught. It developed through arguments made through by the apostles. And it's the one, of course, that's most widely used today in the Western world. And that's what we're going to be considered, considering in this short series. But when was it written? Well, we don't really know when it was written. Throughout the Middle Ages, it was generally thought that this creed was composed by the apostles on the day of Pentecost, and that each one contributed one of the 12 sections. But this is a legend rather than fact. But it does date somewhere back to the 4th century, although we are not really sure. But it doesn't matter because its content is based on the teaching of the apostles and the gospels. So let's then have a look at the apostles' creed. And there it is in its fullness. But we're going to just be looking in this series at this first opening statement, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And tonight we look at this opening phrase, I believe... Two small words, but ones that have tremendous meaning and questioning in them. Because in English terms, faith and belief are two words. But in the Greek, the two words come together in what is called the pistis, I think it is. I'm not a Greek scholar. And uh, in the Latin, the two words come together to become creed. So I believe means I have faith which equals a creed. Now we see in this statement here, I believe. It's an individual statement, isn't it? By an individual person. But when it's joined together with other people, it becomes a community action. We're joining in with the body of Christ, the church here on earth. And so this doesn't just include us here tonight or in the morning service. It's not just the present, but it goes right back across history. 
In other words, when we say, I believe, we are identifying with followers of Jesus right back to the time of Jesus. And that's really important when we consider the symbolic representation of baptism. Because in baptism, no one is asked to come up with their own personal statement of belief. Rather, they're asked to confirm their belief in Jesus, his death and resurrection. And as we participate in that service, we're all invited to be immersed into the reality beyond ourselves. We join with the individual voices together that transcends just an individual. But what does it actually mean, I believe? And can we, in fact, believe anything today? There's great doubt, isn't there, about whether we can believe anything today? Well, the dictionary, again, Sorry, I should have mentioned this slide. If you look at, the, uh, look at the Apostles' Creed and you do this exercise on the computer, believe comes out as the most important word in it. Okay, sorry, I should have said that earlier. So, I believe, what's it mean? Well, going back to our Collins Dictionary, it says, if you believe something is true, you think that it's true, but you're not quite sure. It's really rather like, you know, the expert who says, um, uh, I believe that droughts are going to happen more in the next hundred years. Well, we'd probably say that is true, you know, what with climate change and all the rest of it. But we're not actually positively sure whether that will happen or not. So it's a funny statement, isn't it? But the word believe in the Bible means more than simply agreeing in our minds that something might be true. Because in the Bible, I believe means trust. So when I say I believe in the Apostles' Creed, I'm reminded that life itself is founded on trust. We trust an awful lot of things, don't we? I trust that when I put the switch on, the electricity will run even if I don't understand how it runs, it runs, the bulb lights up. So I believe in, I believe in the creed is a cry of total trust in the triune God, that we believe so strongly in God that we are willing to commit our lives to him, to trust God and to live the way we know that he wants us to live. Augustine says this, Without trust, we would be unable to do anything in this life. Think of it a bit like this. Here's another metaphor for you. You're on a walk. You're walking along a path, and you come to a bridge which crosses a deep valley or canyon. That's the best picture I could find for that. So you're on this walk. You come across this bridge, and you might look at it and believe that it would hold you. You might even see other people walking across it, so you know it would hold your weight. But so far, your belief in the bridge is only up here in your head. When do you really believe that that bridge will hold you? Well, you only really believe it when you're willing to commit yourself to it and actually walk across it. 
And in the same way with Jesus and Christ, yes, we can believe that God exists. Many people do. We often categorise this belief as deism or theism, defined as a belief in the existence of a supreme being or deity. But what God wants us to do is to come to him and to know him personally. God wants our belief to be a trust. We start with, a, with trust. That trust will lead us to experience, which will then lead us to the knowledge of God's trustworthiness. Augustine again said this, if you can't understand, believe, and then you'll understand. And we see this in our passage tonight. So this is where we get back to our biblical readings. You might like to turn to that. We're on page 1065. And I would like to start a little bit further forward at the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2. Now, in the, at the end of chapter 2, that last couple of verses, we see that Jesus was in Jerusalem. We read that many saw him, many listened to him. They saw his miraculous signs that he performed. And as a result of these miracles, they believed in him. Incidentally, isn't this the same today? We see the same. When people see the power of God at work, whether that being in people's lives being completely changed, whether that being people being healed physically and spiritually and emotionally, people being released from fear and addictions, their lives changed by meeting with Jesus, we see people come to believe in him. However, in this, at the end of this chapter 2, what do we see? Did their belief lead to them trusting Jesus and turning to follow him? Well, we just don't know, do we? we don't, we're not given that information. But moving on into chapter 3. Jesus then meets a member of the Jewish ruling council, this man Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus was a religious Jew. And because he was a religious Jew, he would have believed in his head in the one true God. Nicodemus recognised that Jesus is special because of these miracles that he was performing. And so, he recognised that he was pointing towards God. So what does Jesus tell him? What does Jesus say to this man Nicodemus? Well, he says that he needs a complete change. He needs a new birth completed by the Holy Spirit, as well as his natural birth of being one of God's special chosen race, the Jews. Now the metaphor here used by Jesus of birth is interesting, isn't it? Every one of us here tonight has experienced birth, but none of us remember it, and none of us had any control over it. We couldn't decide when or how we were to be born, an outside agency, usually our mothers or doctor, were in control. Well, likewise with this picture of a new spiritual birth. We need God. 
We need his Holy Spirit to challenge us, to carry out this new birthing process. We can't do it for ourselves. We can't come into a relationship with God through any help program or practical acts of doing good. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he's going to be killed. We read of that in verse 15. And then he expands upon this in verse 16, that this is because God the Father has planned this because he loved all the people of the world so much that they can all come into a relationship with God. God had planned this to happen. There was only one condition for this to happen. And that condition was that they had to believe, or if you like the other word, to trust that Jesus came from the Father, that Jesus came to save the world. Look at verses 17 and 18. Because in these verses we see there's a stark choice given here, all connected to belief in the Son. And then if we go on to verses 18 to 21, we see more of this. Look what it says in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done through God. So then we see from this passage that God has bridged the gap between God and us by sending his son to remove that barrier of sin and become that bridge that we can cross. Therefore, to believe in Christ, as we state when we say the creed, is not just a theoretical, academic acceptance that Jesus did live, but rather it's a commitment of our lives by faith to Christ, to trust him personally as our Lord and Saviour. Faith is a response to God's saving action. We may, of course, have doubts, but we can bring these to God in prayer. But we must realise that to trust in Jesus must lead to actions within our lives. We are called to be different to the world. James, the Apostle James, writes in this in James 2, in his letter, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith or trust without deeds is dead. True belief and faith will lead to actions. Now I recognise here that I haven't addressed any of the difficulties that arise from faith and belief. Belief. Even when we've trusted Jesus and we've trusted God, there can be doubts, can't there? There can be times in our lives when God seems to have disappeared, whether that be in times of illness, bereavement, all manner of life issues can raise doubts as to God's existence, 
God's love and God's care. This is a common experience of all mankind. We read of it in the Psalms. We've been looking at the Psalms. David cries out to God, where are you? We read of it in Lamentations as well. We read of it in the book of Job. If you remember, Job was a man of God. But what happened to him? His children died. His wealth got stripped from him. His health deteriorated. Even his wife told him to curse God. Job suffered and wanted to die. And yet we read that through this suffering, God remained with him, even though he didn't feel like this. And then if you go to the New Testament, remember Thomas, who doubted that Jesus had risen from the grave. Remember, Jesus welcomed Thomas back when he doubted. And so we can be honest with God. There are times when we can be angry with God. We can cry out in prayer. He's still there with us. He still cares and loves us. This summer, I had uh, the privilege and time to read a book that examines these issues through the experience of one man, a man called Patrick Reagan, who's written this book, Faith When Faith Gets Shaken. It's, it, I, it, I tell you, if you've got time and you've got anyone who is suffering in faith, It's a great book to have a look at. Look what it says. You probably can't read it on the uh, screen. But it says on the back cover, For Patrick there was pain, illness, loss in his family and community. Then a series of excruciating operations took him to the brink physically, emotionally and spiritually. Writing during his journey of recovery, Patrick explores how we find God in times of suffering. He wrestles with how we can know God's peace when life is anything but peaceful. So if you've got a friend or a colleague or a family member who's suffering, have a look at that book. But belief and faith, of course, is not just an acceptance of a reality, but rather actions that comes from this acceptance. We have, don't we, to cross that bridge in faith that it will hold us up over the river. Well, the creed celebrates this. In the Anglican Church, we say it most services. It gives us the chance to celebrate this with others who have committed their lives to following Jesus, others who have submitted to his will and have the hope of spending eternity with him. So as we look at this creed over the next few Sundays, do take time to celebrate the faith that Jesus offers us. Amen.